If you'd like a class recording, you can sign up for those at the Welcome Center. There's handouts on your way in. Uh, I'm going to begin uh, with this reading from the preface to the 1611 King James Bible. But how shall men meditate in that which they cannot understand? How shall they understand that which is kept close in an unknown tongue? As it is written, except I know the power of the voice, I shall be to him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian to me. That's from 1 Corinthians 14. The apostle accepteth no tongue, not Hebrew, the ancientest, not Greek, the most copious, not Latin, the finest. Therefore, as one complaineth that always in the Senate of Rome there was one or other that called for an interpreter, so lest the church be driven to the like exigent, it is necessary to have translations in a readiness. Translation it is that openeth the window to let the light in, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain that we may look into the most holy place, that removeth the cover of the well that we may come by the water. Indeed, without translation, into the vulgar tongue, the unlearned are but like children at Jacob's well, which was deep, without a bucket or something to draw with. Or, as that person mentioned by Isaiah, to whom, when a sealed book was delivered, with this motion, read this, I pray thee, he was fain to make this answer, I cannot, for it is sealed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we have translations of your word in readiness so that we can know and understand your word and hear your voice. We pray this morning that as we reflect on uh, what you have done to bring your word to us in our language, that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to treasure your word. God, we do not want to to just learn more about history and people and events that happened. God, we want to know you, and we want to understand what you have done to uh, give us life in Christ and to help us grow in him. So we pray that you would do that work in us this morning in this time, and then as we worship um, in just a moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our class in how we got the Bible, and uh, we are considering further uh, the King James Version of the Bible. Last week we talked about uh, how the Bible was translated, how the people who were involved in translating that, how they did their work, kind of the, the history of events that led King James and the bishops and the Puritans in the Anglican Church to, uh, to create a new uh, translation of the Bible. This morning, we're going to spend most of our time uh, considering the preface to the original 1611 translation of the Bible. Uh, when you first opened the King James Bible back in 1611, if you were there, you would come across this lovely dedication to the king, and of course it's King James, and it went something like this. Great and manifold were the blessings, most dread sovereign, which Almighty God, the Father of all mercies, bestowed upon us, the people of England, when first he sent your majesty's royal person to rule and reign over us, etc. It's very wonderful. Uh, it honors King James um, appropriately, 
um, for the time and for being a king. I don't know much how to address kings, but they give us a good example. You would have then come across a preface after that dedication to the king, and the preface is really quite excellent. I shared it on a Facebook page. If you didn't see that or if you didn't get it, I can get it to you. If you Google it, you can find the preface for the King James Bible. It is excellent uh, on many levels. And this morning, we're going to take time to read significant portions of it uh, for several reasons. We want to get a better understanding of the men who translated the King James Version, how they thought of the work that they were doing, their own self-understanding, their own goals, and to be especially specific, in these readings, we want to better understand the context and the principles of the translation of the King James Bible, and then to see and connect the dots between how their thinking in 1611 applies to us today. As you read through, so that's kind of the plan. In the handout that I gave you, I have several block quotes from the preface. I'm going to read a little bit more than that, but I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a flavor of some of the um, especially important sections from that book, or from the preface. So as you read through the preface, one of the things that's quite clear is that the King James translators knew that they had to defend themselves and defend the King James Bible. And this might seem a little strange to us because the King James Bible, a lot of us grew up using the King James Bible. It was assumed, it was taken for granted. Um, and we need to realize that at the time that it came out, it was not received like that. It was not well received by everyone. In time, of course it was. But it was not well received at first. They were receiving all kinds of criticism and skepticism and cynicism. So we can see that they're on the defensive as they begin the preface. They begin the preface like this. They say, zeal to promote the common good, whether it be by devising anything ourselves or revising that which hath been labored by others, deserveth certainly much respect and esteem, but yet findeth cold entertainment in the world. It is welcomed with suspicion instead of love. And with emulation, that word back then meant jealous rivalry, instead of thanks. And if there be any hole left for cavil, cavil means a trivial objection. If there be any hole left for cavil to enter, and cavil, if it do not find a hole, will make one, it is sure to be misconstrued and in danger to be condemned. This will be easily granted by as many as know story or have any experience, for was there ever anything projected that savored any way of newness or renewing, but the same endured many a storm of gainsaying or opposition? So they're saying that whether, whether we were trying to create something new or just revise something, whenever something like this happens, it's met with opposition. It's met with objections. Some of them they call a cavil, like a, a trivial small objection that uh, condemns the whole work. That's what they're expecting and receiving with the King James Bible. They talk about how James himself, the king, was criticized for supporting this work. The preface goes on to say, His majesty that now reigneth, and long and long may he reign, and his offspring forever, himself and children and children's children always, knew full well, according to the singular wisdom given unto him by God, and the rare learning and experience that he hath attained to, namely, 
that whosoever attempteth anything for the public, especially if it pertain to religion and to the opening and clearing of the word of God, the same setteth himself upon a stage to be glouted upon by every evil eye. Yea, he casteth himself headlong upon pikes to be gored by every sharp tongue. For he that meddleth with men's religion in any part meddleth with their custom, nay, with their freehold. And though they find no content in that which they have, yet they cannot abide to hear of altering it. Notwithstanding, his royal heart was not daunted, they're talking again about the king now, or discouraged for this that color, but stood resolute as a statue immovable and an anvil not easy to be beaten into plates, as one saith. He knew who had chosen him to be a soldier, or rather a captain, and being assured that the course which he intended made much for the glory of God and the building up of his church, he would not suffer it to be broken off for whatsoever speeches or practices. So they lay out in quite detail the opposition that they faced and that King James faced. Uh, and um, we're reminded again, just by reading, I mean, these are their, their first two paragraphs in the preface. We're reminded of the long history of opposition to new Bible translations. So in the 300s, you know, remember a while ago we talked about Jerome's translation of the Latin Vulgate? Jerome knew he was going to be criticized for making a new Latin translation, and he was. And then the King James translators, they were criticized, as we'll see, by the Puritans on one hand, by bishops on the other hand, by Catholics on a third hand. And modern translations are sometimes met with criticism, skepticism, and sometimes cynicism. And an aversion to new Bible translations is not new. And the King James Bible itself and the men who worked on it were roundly criticized. Well, how are they criticized? Who could, who could criticize the King James Bible? Well, the criticism number one came from Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics criticized any translation of the Bible into a vernacular language, into the common language that the people spoke. And we're not going to go all the way back into this, but a large part of that was for theological reasons, right? Because the Roman Catholic Church uh, did not like Protestants translating the Bible in a way that people could understand it and access it. Uh, they wanted things um, to be kept in their purview, in their oversight, which, mean keeping it in, which meant keeping it in the Latin, uh, which only the priests could read for the most part. So, uh, Rome was unwilling to communicate the scripture to the people's understanding. That's how the King James translators put their objection. They did not want to communicate scripture to the people's understanding. And what I want us to especially notice is how the King James translators respond to that kind of objection. They show that Christians have always had a desire to translate the Bible into the common language for the sake of spiritual life and health. As you go on in the preface, after they list that objection, they give a pretty nice summary of the history of Bible translation. It's kind of like a summary of what we've been doing in this class for the last several weeks. I wish I would have read the preface in full sooner because it would have helped me um, in preparation for this class. But they start with the Hebrew Bible being translated into the Greek, uh, which is the Septuagint. We talked about that. Uh, and it was translated into the Greek because it was the common language around 200 B.C., and then they talk about how Bible translations were put into Latin because that was the common language that people spoke in 400 AD, and then into other common languages as Christianity spread. But then what's especially important 
is they talk about why Christians do this, why Christians want the Bible in the language that the people speak. Here's what they say. They say that the godly learned were not content to have the scriptures in the language which they themselves understood, the Greek and the Latin, but also for the behoof and edifying of the unlearned, which hungered and thirsted after righteousness, and had souls to be saved as well as they, they provided translations into the vulgar for their countrymen, insomuch that most nations under heaven did shortly after their conversion hear Christ speaking unto them in their mother tongue, not by the voice of their minister only, but also by the written word translated. So, what motivated Christians to translate the Bible into other vulgar or common languages? For the salvation of souls and the edifying of saints. For spiritual life and health. They, they compare this impulse to the good lepers in the, the Bible, and the Gospels. The good lepers who were not content to fare well themselves, but acquainted their neighbors with the store that God had sent that they also might provide for themselves. This is the main reason that we are having this conversation as a congregation. We want people to have God's word in their own language so that they can understand it in their mother tongue and have spiritual life and grow spiritually by reading it themselves. So that was the first criticism, and that was mainly coming from Rome. But they were also being criticized by Protestants. And that criticism, broadly speaking, was that they were being criticized for appearing to denigrate or dishonor prior translations. So this kind of objection would have come from Puritans, who favored the Geneva Bible, or from bishops, who favored the Bishop's Bible. Here's how the preface explains this objection. They say, many men's mouths have been open a good while, and yet are not stopped, with speeches about the translations so long in hand, or rather perusals of translations made before, and ask, what may be the reason? What the necessity of the employment? Hath the church been deceived, say they, all this while? Was their translation good before? Why do they mend it now? Was it not good? So, so some are challenging them, saying, why do we need a new translation? Were the prior translations bad? Are you saying, King James translators, that the church has been deceived all this while with the Bibles that they've been using? Well, the assumption in these charges is that if you make a new translation, you must think badly about the prior ones. But as we'll see, that's not a legitimate assumption. That's not what the King James translators were saying. And again, this is a common objection to modern-day translations. Some assume that creating and favoring a modern translation disrespects older translations, or particularly that it disrespects the King James translation. But that's not a necessary conclusion. So here's how the King James translators responded to this critique, that to create a new translation disrespected the older ones. The King James translators respond first by appreciating and honoring the English translations that came before. 
They say, we are so far off from condemning any of their labors that travail before us in this kind, either in this land or beyond the sea, that we acknowledge them to have been raised up of God for the building and furnishing of his church, and that they deserve to be had of us and of posterity and everlasting remembrance. Therefore, blessed be they, and most honored be their name, that break the ice and give the onset upon that which helpeth forward to the saving of souls. There's that motivation again. They appreciate those prior translations because they forwarded the saving of souls. Now, what can be more available thereto than to deliver God's book unto God's people in a tongue which they understand? So 400 years later, and an ocean apart, we too now should thank God for the work of the King James translators, the Puritan ones and the Anglican ones, and for the bishops who preceded them, who worked on the Bishop's Bible, and for Miles Coverdale, and for John Rogers, and for William Tyndale. We should thank God for all of their labors and so many more. So that was response number one, is that they appreciated and honored the translations that preceded them. Response number two, that at the same time that they honor those prior translations, the King James team, the the team that put that together, about 54 men, they also realized that those earlier translations can be improved upon. They said, yet for all that, as nothing is begun and perfected at the same time, and the later thoughts are thought to be the wiser, so if we, building upon their foundation that went before us, and being halpened by their labors, do endeavor to make that better which they left so good, no man, we are sure, hath cause to mislike us. They, we persuade ourselves, if they were alive, would thank us. Modern translators think of themselves in much the same way, that they are building on the work of those who came before them. If you read prefaces to modern translations, a lot of them will mention this, that they are self-consciously trying to build on the work of those who came before them and to make that better which they left so good. And I would venture to say that if the King James translators, if they were alive, would thank the modern translators for their work. And you can also see here that they understood, the King James translators understood that translations grow or mature. They are not begun and perfected at the same time. And later thoughts are wiser, just as we grow wiser with age. They keep using this metaphor of maturing as they go on. They say, let no man be grieved that we have a prince, they're talking about James, that seeketh the increase of the spiritual wealth of Israel. So they probably have a little bit different theology than us. But let us rather bless God from the ground of our heart for working this religious care in him to have the translations of the Bible maturely considered of and examined. There's that idea of maturity. For by this means, by that mature consideration, it cometh to pass that whatsoever is sound already— and all is sound for substance in one of the other of our, our editions, the same will shine as gold more brightly, being rubbed and polished. Also, if anything be halting or superfluous or not so agreeable to the original, the same may be corrected and the truth set in place. So here again, we see that they understand translation work to be something that can be matured, corrected, updated, polished. These are the kinds of words they're using to talk about their own work and how they think about translation. So those are the first two responses to the the criticism that a new translation disrespects the older ones. Third, their third response is they affirm that even imperfect translations 
are the word of God. Imperfect translations are the word of God. They say, Now to the latter we answer that we do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow that the very meanest, that word for them meant most basic, right? It didn't mean like not kind. That the very meanest translation of the Bible in English containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God. As the king's speech, which he uttered in Parliament, being translated into French, Dutch, Italian, and Latin, is still the king's speech, though it be not interpreted by every translator with the like grace, nor peradventure so fitly for phrase, nor so expressly for sense, everywhere. So they argue that imperfections do not diminish the virtue or quality of a translation. They say, a man may be counted a virtuous man, though he have many slips in his life. Else there were none virtuous, for in many things we offend all. They say, no cause, therefore, why the word translated should be denied to be the word, or forbidden to be current, notwithstanding that some imperfections and blemishes may be noted in the setting forth of it. So, the King James translators argue newness in translation is not a vice. If that were the case, how do you ever get the first translation? Or, if that were the case, how would you ever get a second translation? Further, they argue that translations can still be considered to be the Word of God despite identifiable imperfections. And this is, again, for translation work has always been the case. And again, this is why we started the whole class with theology, with our theology of the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, and that our copies of God's Word carry those qualities inasmuch as they reflect what was originally written. We have a high degree of confidence that they do. So they, they have these distinctions and affirmations in what they're writing here. They support this point by a historical illustration, and we talked about this when we talked about the Septuagint. They, they support this point by considering that the apostles received the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, as authoritative scripture. Here's what they say. They say the translation of the Septuagint dissenteth, that means disagrees, from the original Hebrew in many places. Neither does it come near it for perspicuity, that's clarity, gravity, or majesty. Yet which of the apostles did condemn it? Which apostle condemned the Septuagint, even though it had imperfections in it? They say condemn it, nay, they used it, as it is apparent, and as St. Jerome and most learned men do confess, which they would not have done, nor by their example of using it, so grace and commend it to the church, if it had been unworthy of the appellation and the name of the word of God. So they, they are affirming here that translations, even though they have identifiable imperfections, things that can be improved upon, are still the word of God. And the way that we see this demonstrated, even in the New Testament, is the apostles affirming and using the Septuagint. And at the same time, of course, that doesn't mean that we should settle with those imperfections. They, of course, in translating the King James, wanted to continue to improve it. Response number four, and then I'll pause. Their fourth response is that revising a translation is not a vice, but a virtue. They say, for to whomever was it imputed for a fault by such as were wise to go over that which he had done and to amend it where he saw cause. 
If we be sons of the truth, we must consider what it speaketh and trample upon our own credit, yea, and upon other men's credit too, if either be any way a hindrance to the truth. So here we see the principle behind revisions and corrections is the truth of the original text. When the translation does not agree well with the original text, we update it for the sake of the truth, even when it means we, quote, trample on our own credit, yea, and upon other men's too. We'll talk about this again in just a second, but again, the King James translators understood themselves to be revising the, the bishop's Bible, but they also were revising their own work as they went. They said, neither did we disdain to revise that which we had done and to bring back to the anvil that which we had hammered, but having and using as great helps as were needful, and fearing no reproach for slowness, nor coveting praise for expedition, speed, we have at length, through the good hand of the Lord upon us, brought the work to that pass that you see. So their fourth response is that revising a translation, whether they're revising the bishop's Bible or revising their own work, is not a vice, but it's a virtue. So those are the two big criticisms that they faced. Just translation in general, and that was largely coming from Rome. And they were also being criticized by Protestants who said that to make a new translation was not necessary and it was disrespecting what they already had. So here I'll pause. We'll talk a little bit more about the preface and then maybe we'll get into the text. Um, but I'll pause here for any comments, thoughts, questions that you might have. Uh, yes, Donna and then John. Go ahead, Donna. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So some people, e even back then, uh, and especially so today, would make a distinction between whether our Bibles are the Word of God or contain the Word of God. And this especially comes into play around some things of morality that people would say might be culturally bound, or some things of history. Some people might say, oh, the flood didn't really happen, or creation didn't really happen, some scientific things like that. People would say through modern eyes, yeah, okay, the Bible is a good guide for spiritual things, maybe for morality, so it contains the Word of God. The Word of God's in there somewhere, but we kind of got to sift through it. And they're, they're clarifying here that the Bibles, even when they're translated, it doesn't just contain God's Word, that it, we should consider it to carry the virtues and the qualities of the original to the degree that they reflect them. And so there are some translations, and the easiest ones to identify, right, are um, the ones that, like, Jehovah's Witnesses would use that deliberately change things to fit their theology, right? Um, there are some things like that, that they're changing the actual text of it. Um, but we can say with our translations that when they are reflecting what was originally written in the Greek and the Hebrew, that they carry the virtues of the original. So our translations, we would say, the best way I know how to explain it is that our translations are inspired and errant and infallible to the degree that they reflect the originals. And almost completely they do, to a high degree of certainty and confidence they do. Yeah. 
Does that, does that help? Yeah. John? Or, oh, okay. Yes, Chuck. Yeah, so Chuck's asking about the prefaces that might be in our King James Bible. So, in my King James Bible, I have a one-page preface. It is not the one from 1611. Um, there's also one, a large one, that's very similar, and I think it's just updated for some spelling features, in 1769. That, I think, is an Oxford one. We'll talk about this in a minute. The King James Bible has been revised and updated many, many, many times in Oxford, in Cambridge, in the U.S., in other places. This preface that I have, I assume, is from the publisher that's just a comment about the layout of my King James. Most, uh, for, for quite a while, the preface has been taken out uh, of King James Bibles, yeah, or the original preface has been removed. So I, it would be great if your King James has it. Uh, it's not common that it's in there. Yes, Chuck. We'll talk about that more later in the class. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So in the, the what remains of the preface, the vast majority of it is this. It's them defending themselves. They shift towards the end to just kind of describe the mission for their work. They describe their translation philosophy, how they chose to translate words. We'll talk about that later. They explain their marginal notes. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, they say that their goal was to improve what came before them. Uh, we saw this a little bit earlier, but they say, truly good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against. That hath been our endeavor, that our mark. So they, they understood themselves to be revising that which came before them. Um, the goal of the translators was to put the scripture in the language of the common person. They say, we desire that the scripture may speak like itself, as in the language of Canaan, that it may be understood even of the very vulgar. This is important for us to understand, I think, because we often think of the King James as being a high, formal, kind of religious English. Uh, sometimes when, when we pray, we'll switch into, you know, these and thous, uh, which is fine. Uh, it, it sounds uh, more like what we read in the King James Bible, but that's what we just need to realize is that that's not how the King James translators thought of themselves. Uh, they were not using high religious language. They were using their spoken English, and they understood themselves to be putting the Bible into the common language of the very vulgar. Um, so that's what they understood about their goal. I want to try to talk a bit about the text this morning. Um, 
the printing of the King James uh, was done by Robert Barker. That was the King's printer. It was large. The first edition was, you know, over, it was 16 inches by 10 and a half inches. Um, it had a large title page. There it is. That's the title page. It says, the Holy Bible containing the Old Testaments and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by his majesty's special commandment appointed to be read in churches, Anno Domini 1611. Um, one of the things that the King James translators do that you can see in their text, and you probably know about this in your own King James Bibles, is um, that the words that they supplied when they translated were put in a different font. So in most of your Bibles, it's in italics. Uh, they didn't do quite use italics in the original, um, but they did mark off those words that they had to supply uh, when they translated words into English. And this is just a normal translation thing, right? We just have to understand Hebrew and Greek, uh, they, might, they use words and they structure their sentences and their grammar is different than English. So when you translate from one language into another, sometimes you have to supply words to make it make sense. And so that's what they were doing, and they, they designated these words by putting it in a different font. What I've supplied for you here is 1 Corinthians 14.2. If you were here uh, for the Ask the Elders a few Sunday nights ago, I pointed out this verse because this talks about, this says, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. And the word unknown there is not in the Greek. Um, it's literally in the Greek, he that speaketh in a tongue. Um, and they supply that word unknown, which is fine, um, but it's doing a little bit of interpreting for us. And we have to figure out okay, wh what are these tongues, um, and do some interpreting there. But they mark it off as being a word that they supplied. They also have notes in the margin um, that indicate, this is Bruce Metzger explaining them, the notes in the margin indicate for the most part alternative or more literal renderings. In some cases, they specify variant readings in the original text. So sometimes they would have two or three or four Greek or Hebrew texts, and the Greek or the Hebrew text that they're working with had different words, and when that happened, they would make a note about it in the margin. It says, in other cases, they gave brief explanations of words or expressions. So the Old Testament had over 6,000 textual notes. The New Testament had over 7,000. 35 of those were variants in the original languages, um, and there's other breakdowns of those. But here, in 1 Corinthians 14.2, there's a note, not about the word unknown, but there's a note which says, for no man understandeth him. And there's a little cross symbol by understandeth, and in the margin it says that the Greek word is actually heareth. Um, and again, this is, is just a more literal word. There's a Greek word for hear, and there's a Greek word for understand, but in English they're doing a little bit of interpreting, which again is fine, it's very normal in translations, but they're letting us know that the literal Greek word is heareth. Uh, and modern translations do much the same thing. Here's another example, uh, if I get the slide to go, from 1 Samuel 10, 24. I like this one. I don't remember how I came across this one. I, I think it was just in my Bible reading. In 1 Samuel 10, 24, um, this is when, I think this is uh, Saul being crowned. It says, all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Now, no Jewish person in the history of ancient Israel ever said, God save the king. Um, that, is, that is a British way of speaking, right? That is an English way of speaking. And they have a note. They have a cross next to it. And in the margin, 
They say that the Hebrew literally says, let the king live. So the word God is not in the original Hebrew. The word save is not in the original Hebrew. Um, and the word live is in the original Hebrew, but it's not in the English. So they're just, they're, they're giving the idea, right? It's a perfectly, for somebody living in 1611 in England, that is a perfectly acceptable way to translate this Hebrew phrase, uh, saying, God save the king. That's what the, the Jewish people meant when they were speaking. But it's not what they said. They literally said, let the king live. And they make a note about that in the margin. There are other examples. So sometimes translators or wow, what just happened? I don't know if I'm going to be able to fix this. So I was just going to say that there are some places where um, the King James translators, they, they will use a translation into English that helps us understand, but they don't always explain it. One of the easiest examples that you probably know of, uh, because modern translations do the very same thing, is the word patience. When, when the Bible says that God is long-suffering in Exodus 34, that's not the literal Hebrew. The literal Hebrew, uh, here it is in Exodus 34, 6, it says that the Lord is long-suffering, the word for long-suffering is literally long of nose, um, but they don't make a marginal note here. Uh, there are plenty of times where this kind of thing happens too, so I'm just using this to show that sometimes translators, whether it's King James or modern translation, they'll let you know what the literal words are, uh, but sometimes they don't, and that's perfectly fine. Um, here in Isaiah 65:11, this is another example. I'm actually going to skip it for the sake of time, but it's fascinating. Uh, I can tell you about it later if you want. Um, I want to show you another uh, variant or another marginal note in Luke 17. Aha. Here in Luke 17, this note is a different kind of note. So there in verse 36, it says, Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. There's a note in the margin that says this 36 verse is wanting in most of the Greek copies. So they make a note here that most of the Greek copies that they have don't have this verse in it. Some of the Greek copies do, and this is Luke's edition. There are other Gospels that do have this sentence in it, um, and so the King James translators put it in line in the text, but they just make a note that there are plenty of Greek texts that don't have this in it, and modern translations do very much the same thing They'll make a note that says that most texts don't have this, uh, or sometimes they'll put verses like that in a footnote. There were also, I don't think this clicker is going to work, so I'm just going to do this manually. There were also some things that were, uh, when the King James Bible was translated, so there were, uh, things were beyond the marginal notes. Now, there were some things that were printing errors. Again, this is very common. It still happens today. I have some things I've found in my own King James Bible that are just printing errors. This one's from Exodus 14.10, from the original 16.11 King James, where they, they copy the same phrase twice. If you start reading this, it says, The Egyptians marched after them, and they were, more, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel lift up their eyes, and, be, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. So it copies the, the same uh, phrase twice. It was just a printing error 
That's not a translation issue. In Luke 23, this is an interesting phrase because here it says, and there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. This is talking about Jesus going to the cross. And here, because of the punctuation, it could imply that Jesus was a malefactor and that there were two other malefactors led with him. In your King James Bible, in my King James Bible, this has changed uh, so that now there are commas that say there were also two others, malefactors, comma, led with him. So in my edition of the King James, it just clarifies Jesus is not a malefactor. There were two other guys. They were the malefactors. Um, it would have helped if, uh, I think, and I think this is just a printing issue. There's another printing issue uh, that says, ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. That should be strain out a gnat. That was just a printing error. Um, the word is strain out, not strain at. Um, and this one still persists. Um, the malefactors one has been corrected uh, in our modern King James, but this one, if you open your King James Bible, it would still say that it's strain, strain at a gnat uh, rather than strain out a gnat. Um, there's a famous uh, printing issue. Actually, this one is kind of a printing issue, but it's also, it was quickly addressed. This is kind of a translation issue. In Ruth 3.15, um, it says at the very end, and he went into the city. So Boaz lays barley, laid it on her, and it says, and he went into the city. The first editions that were printed in 1611 say he went into the city. But in 1611, there were more printed that changed that he to a she. And so the question is, is Boaz going into the city or is Ruth going into the city? And here, the interesting thing is we have Hebrew texts. Some say he went into the city, and some say she went into the city. Um, and so this is kind of a translation correction that I think that the King James translators were making. And I think that she went into the city is probably the correct reading in context there. Uh, the last thing that I'll point out is that the, the King James was revised many times. So there were careful revisions of the King James that were made in editions published by Cambridge in 1629. So it's just, you know, a couple decades later, um, and then in 1638, and then later in 1762, a significant revision was published by Oxford scholars in 1769. In 1847, the American Bible Society appointed a committee to review the King James Bibles because they're being printed by different printers, and the different printers had different, slightly different texts. And so the American Bible Society was saying, we want to get all these together and kind of standardize it. Uh, and so they did that. They identified 24,000 variations between the different King James Bibles. And they affirmed, they affirmed, there is not one variation which mars the integrity of the text or affects any doctrine or precept of the Bible. We'll talk more about this later. Sometimes people will say, skeptics will say, the Greek texts don't agree, your English texts don't agree, there's all these errors and variations. And the response to that is, none of them are material. We can easily identify them. One of the errors in my King James is the word soldiers is spelled soliders. That is easily identifiable. I know what happened. It was a typo. Um, and there's, most of them are things like this. They're easily identified. They're not problems for Christianity or for the doctrine of Scripture. In 1861, then, after they reviewed all that, they made a lot of changes uh, in the American Bible Society, made an addition to the King James. Most of those corrections involved spelling or grammar. Additional spelling updates were made for American editions of the King James in 1932 and again in 1962. With the production of the King James, I'll just conclude it like this, because we have to dismiss. 
the English translations paused for the most part. There was some translation work going on. Part of the reason was the political unrest in the 1600s and 1700s. Parliament introduced a bill in 1653 to appoint a committee to revise the King James. But the project failed because Parliament was dissolved in 1660. And then England got a little distracted in the 1700s by some pesky colonies in the West. Wink, wink. Um, the, and Bruce Metzger, he says, the main reason for this pause in the work was that for the moment, finality had been reached. The version of 1611 was an adequate translation of the Greek and Hebrew texts as they were known to scholars and the common people eventually came to find that its language appealed to them with greater charm and dignity than that of the Geneva version, which they had previously been accustomed to. So for the most part, we'll talk more about what happens next, but for the most part in Bible translation, Bible translation in English reaches a high point in the King James for hundreds of years. Um, and then next week, we'll pick up with some of the things that start happening in the 1800s. Then um, that's where we'll go next. All right. I'm going to conclude by praying. If you have any questions or want to talk about anything, I will be around, uh, but we'll be dismissed for our worship service. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us in our language. God, we pray that as we worship this morning, that we would receive your word with gladness, that we would hear uh, about what you've done for us in Christ and how you teach us to follow him. Help us to have ears to hear. Uh, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.